Hi, welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work plus community plus creativity. And in these unusual times, I am adding homeschooling to the mix. I am a longtime homeschooler myself. I always worked while I did it. I have always done art on some level and pretty addicted crafter at times. And I've always worked in the community, either volunteering or via my family life, because that's community too. The guests I'm going to be talking to this fall are all homeschoolers, and they talk about how they manage their time and integrate educating their kids into the rest of their day and their week. And the reason I'm doing this is that people often do not realize that real homeschooling, not remote schooling, not schooling at home, replicating the school day, but rather going through your child's interests is very, very proven, incredibly successful and strengthens family relationships and allows you to get your own stuff done. And the reason I can say this with confidence is because I did it. And if it was harder than the alternative, I would not have done it. It was considerably easier. And it is having done it, my kids were in school and out of school. And the times that they were out of school, their opportunities for learning just expanded so, so much that to do it in pandemic times is kind of the perfect experiment. It's a proven way of educating kids. This remote schooling thing experiment of sitting in front of Zoom for six hours, which as adults we would hate, that's unproven. But homeschooling, the outcomes are phenomenal. And I can say that again with total certainty because my own work. My own kids have graduated college. They transitioned in and out of public schools as they were interested in doing so. So it really is something worth trying if this remote schooling thing is not working out for you. Or if you'd just like more of your own time back, if you want to reclaim your time, or if you want to strengthen your relationships and see what your family would look like, there is no downside to experimenting. As parents, we are sold things all the time. Oh, I should introduce myself. <laughs> I was going to start talking about selling. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. I'm going to help you help you with this fall. As parents in particular, we are sold consumerism using fear. It's a tactic. It's a common tactic. Once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. And the biggest fear that we have is of doing wrong by our kids. And it's a funny thing to think about because, you know, all of us have had our own experiences or known people that we judged and felt were bad parents. And in some way we think, oh, they don't care about their kids. And I have to tell you, they all do, whether their pain gets in the way or not. Everybody on some level wants to do right by their kids. They may fail spectacularly at it, but the basic urge is there as a human being. You want to do right by your kids. And marketers know that. The world knows that. Consumerism as a concept knows that. And that the easiest way to sell you something is to make you afraid that you are not doing well by your kids. What is never really addressed is how if you are an attentive, curious, kind parent, you're doing well by your kids. And it really, in a sort of basic way, almost doesn't matter 
whether or not they're doing this kind of schooling or that kind of schooling, the things that we really worry about, we make this assumption that we can step in the place of college admissions in however many years and reject our own kid for things that we did as parents. Another thing, by the way, colleges colleges are marketing organizations as much as anything else. So it's another sort of fear tactic is to make you worry that no good will come of your kid if you don't do the right things in every possible way. It is worth taking, not leaning in, but taking a step back and a deep breath and looking at the things you do control. You control how you respond to your child. You control how interested you are in your child. You control your own time. And in a large sense, you control your reality. And that affects your kids. So the thing I want to talk about today has to do with that doing right by your kids. And if you keep them home all year this year, if you take them out of school and homeschool them, and if you spend about two hours a day working on like your focus on them, and the rest of your day is done on your own work, and the rest of the day is those kids playing, your kids will have no ill effects. Not in the long run. It's a long run. Maybe in the short run, but honestly, it depends how you define ill effect. A child's work is to play, and that's how they start to build their concepts of the world. It's how they start to follow their curiosity. If you create a learning environment all around them, then you have not harmed your child in any way. So I want to talk a little bit about one of those things where if we change this thing, a lot of our relationships just blossom. And you know what? If nothing else comes out of this pandemic time, if it turns out to be a time that you could deepen your relationship with your kids, and I'm not saying every single day is going to be flowers and unicorns. I'm saying that even with the hard times, you still end up in a place where this relationship is fulfilling. Then the pandemic will have been a blessing in disguise in some way. Okay. So what I want to talk about is attention versus connection. Sometimes we can just change the words we use and have a better version of our reality. The first one I think about all the time that I learned when my kids were little was, you can think of this as a euphemism if you want, was spirited. My first kid was very much like I was as a child. My mother suffered from undiagnosed mental illness and the way I was as a child triggered her apparently terribly. So I had a child who was very, very much like me, very active, fast, curious, a talker, an early talker, an early understander. I, my daughter seemed to understand very complex ideas when she was extremely young. And it took a little bit of time to realize she didn't. She had what she had done is mastered the social skill of looking like she understood very complex ideas. So there were consequences and other things that I progressed as if she was an older child because her responses were always so 
reasonable to me. It seemed like she understood. And it took me a while to start to ask, do you understand? Because she would be so socially accepting of what I said. So I used the euphemism spirited. There weren't a lot of words to talk about a child when my kids were growing up who could be exasperating, but so joyful and delightful at the same time, but also exhausting and a lot of work. And it felt very much like, you know, when she was four or five, I was feeling like I was really spiraling into terrible ways of talking about my child just because I was tired. I was very tired a lot. And by the time she was five, I had three kids. And her energy and her driving needs to be doing things was difficult for me to accommodate, especially with my own needs and the other kids' needs and then running the household, having a job. All these things were difficult for me to juggle, and I felt very, very alone. So I grabbed onto the word spirited like it was a life preserver because I could now use it to sort of indicate my sort of amused but also challenge of living with this small person who was a whirlwind of interests and energy. And on the one hand, it's sort of euphemistic, but on the other hand, euphemism has this kind of this sense that's negative. Spirited made me able to talk about her in a positive way and think about her in a positive way, acknowledging the ways in which this was a good thing that might also be a little bit sometimes difficult to be around, difficult to have in a small house. Spirited has been in the vocabulary for some time. There's a book about it. I think that may be where I got it from. And I find it useful. But there's a lot of other ways we talk about kids that turns out to be not just negative, but truly damaging. And the one I want to really address today is attention. And in this way, I have to say, this was one of those things where I really shared this legacy with my daughter. I tried not to use this because it had been thrown at me so hurtfully so often. But I constantly hear parents using this. And the word is attention. Well, she just wants attention. And it's a legitimate phrase that people use all the time. And where are you coming from when you say she just wants attention? He just wants attention. You're saying it's attention I don't want to give. It's undeserved attention. It's a demand for attention when in fact attention should be something that you passively wait for. It is an imposition to the speaker that this person just wants attention. And there's something about it that delegitimizes attention. So what is a really useful way to reconstruct this instead, to reframe this, is to say to yourself, anytime you are tempted to say, this person wants attention, is to change it to say, this person wants connection. Now, going back to the concept of attention, there's nothing wrong with wanting attention. You know, it ends up looking like a zero-sum game, like you want attention and then you'll have all the attention 
and there will be no attention left for me or other people. Attention is not a zero-sum game. If you want true intimacy, it can be a little bit of a zero-sum game. Like That has to be something that's exchanged back and forth if it's all one way. Sure, I, I can see that. But a far more compassionate way to look at this and a way that will make your relationships better, a way that will make your relationship with yourself better, and a way that will make the situation less stressful is when you think about this other person and the thing that they just did or, or whatever it is that is triggering you or just bringing you into this headspace. If you take a second and replace the word attention with connection. So why is she crying? She just wants connection. Why is he doing a temper tantrum? Well, he just wants connection. One of the benefits of using this switch is that a lot of our brain chemistry punishes ourself, not the person we're thinking about. So just to take an example, uh, we have a current high government official who angers people a lot because he himself is very angry. When we are angry, he is not affected by our anger, but we are. When we're fearful about what he says and does, he is not affected by our fear, but we are. Our brains release chemicals, release their endorphins, their hormones. Our brains release these things in response to these emotions, to these feelings that we have. That's not to say not to have feelings. It is to say, be aware that your feelings take a toll on you. So wherever possible, we want to mitigate those feelings. We want to relieve those feelings. And whenever possible, especially with someone that we care very much about, we want to be able to manage those feelings so that we're not punishing ourselves all the time. Being compassionate is one of the ways to relieve ourselves of the storm of hormones that happens when we feel bad about people and things. And it's interesting, people who have a very long history of feeling bad about things, feeling angry or sad or hurt or whatever we might think of as bad, those aren't necessarily bad, often feel like it's useful to feel angry about something. But when it comes to your kids, it's not really useful because it's very difficult. Now, you've basically passed on a construct of how to feel about yourself, which is angry. Usually people that look at kids and say, you're just looking for attention, had the same thing said to them, the same thing done to them. It's very much a, an unconscious thing that you pass down. So if that's possible to reframe that to they just want connection, imagine how differently we will feel about this person if we're now looking for ways to help them connect. That's how we get stronger relationships. Next up, I'm going to have the second half of my conversation with Christine Hebert, a woman who educated seven kids, many of them at home, and 
all sorts of interesting ways about how to look at where you learn and how you learn. You know, knowing your own strengths and being able to say, okay, this is where I need some help and outsourcing those things is huge. Yeah. And just, just a footnote, that personal math class, actually, I took those, those kinds of classes for pretty much all four years. Those were the times I was in a class of mostly non-white students, which gives you some idea of what tracking was doing to the other kids too. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> any, any student who has the challenge of language as well as the challenge of the regular class, it's got to be extremely difficult. Yeah. They did a disservice in a lot of ways by tracking them out into classes they thought would be easier instead of making available the tools they needed to succeed where they really should have been. Yeah. I know, I know some Hispanic people who used to go back and forth between here and Puerto Rico. And he's, you know, um, this friend of ours is a lawyer and he's talked about how he felt like dumbed down here Uh because of the language barrier. They would put him in a class that really wasn't challenging. Right. So instead of meeting kids where they're at and trying to help them overcome their language barrier while giving them what they really should be learning, you know, we we've done a disservice to a lot of people. Well, and you brought up something that is very dear to my heart, which is that concept of managing for success. You know, to look at a kid, look at a subject and say, how can we have you be successful Mm -hmm. in this thing instead of, oh, well, you're not good at it. So (laughs) you you get to see, you get to see, but you'll still go to ninth grade, but you're just not good at this. (laughs) Well, and I think it's also fair to say that there are things in life that we're not going to be good at, Mm. you know? I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. You ask me to draw a picture, you're getting a stick figure because that's where I'm at with something like that. Right. And I had um, a challenge with my kids because they're all much more artistic than I am. So trying to make sure that they got the artsy stuff that I am horrible at. Hmm. So there again, I went and took them to a co-op where they had an art class, art history, and they got to play with clay and they got to paint and things like that, that really were not as big a thing in my house because I couldn't help them with that. I had no ability. I can color a picture with crayons. That's about it. So that's the extent of my artistic ability. Well, yeah, and I think that points out some of the interesting differences about what you were saying before, crisis homeschooling. Some of the stuff that you and I did, I think of that with the socialization, too. Some of the stuff we did where we were like, fine, then we'll go to brownies, you know, fine, and we'll go to art class. That is going to be a challenge, I think, for people, although there are so many ways to get at that information that there weren't 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Face-to-face get real-time feedback from a teacher saying, we'll try that again, but if you turn it upside down, you might find it easier to try, whatever. Right. I had, my younger daughter is actually green-purple colorblind. 
Mm. It's very rare, and it's even more rare in girls. But art for her was always challenging. We used to fight about what color she was wearing. She'd be like, I'm wearing blue. Now you're wearing green, but it's blue, Mom. And <sighs> until we didn't realize for a very long time that she had this color blindness, when they finally figured out, it's like, oh, so much makes sense now. <laughs> and the challenges of taking an art class and doing color wheels for her was something that, you know, I, I scratched my head about. It's like, well, it's this color. And it, when you have something that's labeled, it's one thing. When you have to figure it out looking at what's in front of you, it's another. Right. Particularly, you know, greens and purples next to each other. So if she was doing a la like a field of lavender, she would see gray. Oh. Different shades of gray because purple and green next to each other just made everything gray. And green, she usually sees blue or yellow, depending on the shade of green. That is fascinating. So knowing these things, you know, and knowing knowing if your kid needs glasses or not, that helps. Um, you know, like I said, my, my youngest was very busy, but he would sit and he would draw and he would color and he was in the lines. And I didn't realize until I took him for, you know, he's almost five. I'm like, okay, I'll take him for an eye exam. And the eye doctor said his eyes are a full unit off from each other, which is why he doesn't sit still. Cause he has to work. He has to move his body to focus his eyes. Oh, so if I had sent him to school, he would have passed their screening. They do. And they would have wanted to give him ADD drugs when in yeah. actuality he couldn't see. <laughs> right. So, you know, knowing your own kids and the tools they need there again, you know, some need to hear things and see things. Some need to move. Some need to have glasses. And I, I've heard people say, well, I can't, I can't, I'm not good enough to teach my own kids because I don't know what the teachers know. And right. the thing is, you know, your children better than any teacher ever will. You yeah. live with them. You have taught them from the day they were born how to do things. You taught them how to feed themselves and how to dress themselves and how to put on their shoes and how to use the bathroom. And there's so many things we teach our children and we don't even think about it because... Yeah, we act like it doesn't count. Right, but it does. All of that counts. And. Yeah. Being able to build on what you that relationship that you have means that there's usually trust. So when mm -hmm. you say, okay, try this, and you show them how to do something, if they stumble with it, they know you're not going to go crazy on them. You're just going to help them do, try again. Right. So there's that managing for success piece. It, exactly. That was probably the biggest takeaway I had in all of our homeschooling years is being able to find things that worked for my kids. You know, my younger daughter, we tried Matthew C for algebra. And I know a lot of people who love Matthew C because it's got blocks and it's real visual. Mm. And I was trying to explain the X, Y, and Z axis for math. And one of the things that it said to do is, you know, hang a string and put like a ruler across it and so that you get this visual and trying to do these things with my daughter made her cry. So Matthew C, which 
not a not an inexpensive program. Fortunately, I got it used, and within two weeks of starting it, we turned around and sold it to someone else because it was not a tool that worked for my kids. Yeah. But it worked for someone else. So knowing that there's a lot of tools, there's a lot of approaches, there's so many different ways to teach everything. Right. And knowing that and knowing that if something's not working, I can try something else. Well, the tools are so fascinating too. Like my kids were in and in and out of school at different various times, but when they were in school, one of the things they found because it started at the same time and they used it well all the way through college is Khan Academy. I used it in grad school. And I remember thinking, well, this would have made things a lot easier. Uh (laughs) It's right there. It's like, boy, this is like sometimes we're sort of stuck in this 1800s version or a Christmas story, 1930s idea of school. And actually, there's these tools available that you could be on a boat in the Atlantic. And if you had internet, you could, right. <laughs> you could totally figure this stuff out. So funny that you said on a boat in the Atlantic, because that's my son's classroom right now. Is it? My oldest son is currently in the engine room on a boat in the Atlantic. Wow. That's part of his education. The college he goes to, part of his education, a whole year of education, is spent on ships. Wow. So he's studying marine engineering, and the best way to learn marine engineering is to actually go and look at it. So he's that's where he is right now in the middle of the Atlantic on a ship working in the engine room. Then he'll go back yes. to campus next trimester. His school has trimesters. Their year is, they get maybe a month and a half total, I think, off all year. I feel like they're being properly quarantined. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> The quarantine struggles, that's another issue entirely. I mean, my son's college, uh, United States Merchant Marine Academy, has zero cases of COVID mm. in faculty or staff, but they're still making them social distance and wear masks. Mm. And that's very difficult. It's very difficult to be, you know, 20 years old and be told that you can't go for a run and you can't work out in the gym and you can't interact yeah. With other people. It, that's a very, very challenging it's, thing. It's been interesting. The homeschooling sort of piece has changed a lot of my habits. So when this whole thing started, I started going back and reading as much as I could first person accounts of the 1918, 1919 Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised at how much of that no one had, hadn't gotten passed down from our grandparents and parents of like, oh, yeah, no, we basically shut everything down. <laughs> you know, they. it's interesting. And polio, same thing. Polio used to close the pools for oh, yeah. 40 years. Yep. And nobody really sort of feels like, oh, of course, then we'll have, you know, we, we've had to do this before. I One of the things I read talked about how houses have changed because of communicable diseases. So brass doorknobs were put in because you they kill a certain number of germs on contact and and sinks were changed and countertops. It's all of this in response to various outbreaks of disease. And I was like, oh, wow. It's almost like looking at history through the lens of the diseases. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is stuff that would have been good to hear. Like, you know, things we think are normal are only sometimes normal. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, and <laughs> you know. there again, it's the tools for what you need. And I am so tired of hand sanitizer and antibiotic wipes everywhere because my fear now is the superbugs with right. all of this hand sanitizer. Yeah. Are we going to have a really horrendous flu season where people are going to be, you know, have pneumonia from the flu because they've killed all the good bacteria on their bodies? Yeah. Yeah. Hand sanitizer. I have those moments when I just see discarded masks and gloves and I think, well, you know, at least in the 1918-19 pandemic, they were all cotton. So if you dropped one, it would just rot there in about six months. Right. Months. This stuff is just... Oh, sad garbage. <laughs> it is. And yeah. the, the whole switching from plastic bags to reusable bags and then saying, oh, well, we can't use the reusable bags because they carry germs, but the plastic bags are polluting the oceans. And yeah. there's, there's, let's go back to yeah. paper bags because they've got so many uses. Yeah. And make them, make them out of some kind of like bamboo or grass or something that you can grow a lot of. Yeah. There's no yeah. need, there's no need not to. I mean, look hemp. Right. We could use hemp, which is fast growing, which is inexpensive, which does not deplete the soil, at which we can make toilet paper, we can make writing paper, we can make all kinds of things out of hemp, but the stigma of hemp. Well, and here's <laughs> something that's kind of fun to know about hemp, and that is that the colonists were all required to grow it because it was a rope component. And so for for like the first, you know, 200 years of the country, farmers were told they had to grow that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we only changed it over in like 100, 110 years ago. Uh -huh. <laughs> Suddenly it becomes a thing you're not supposed to have. It's still um, excellent for rope, although not for marine rope from what my son tells me. I bet not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it wears i guess in the salt water so that's interesting yeah yeah if you're just joining us this is nine to thrive a show about community and work and creativity and balancing those with the other things you have to do right now talking to a lot of homeschoolers and with me is christine Hebert, and we're talking about how she was able to make a supportive learning environment for her kids yeah. So what led you to homeschool in the first place? What what kind of brought you there? Um, well, we started, the first one we homeschooled was actually our youngest. Uh -huh. And we just, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, we knew his name and we knew we were going to homeschool. I don't know. There wasn't a particular aha moment or anything. It was just, you know, we, there were things going on in the schools we didn't like. Hmm. our particular schools here in Chicopee. And so we said, you know, we're just going to take this year by year and we're going to start here. I mean, I, how hmm. it's not hard to teach your kid to read if you give yourself the tools. Right. I figured I couldn't screw that part up. So we took it year by year and um, so that's how we started. And then okay. when we brought my daughter home, it was because she had, gone to school through fourth grade. She went to a parochial school and her fourth grade teacher convinced her she was stupid. And I had a lot of damage to undo. Ugh. You know, a, a bad teacher can really make or break a child's schooling experience. Yeah. And 
you know, she had the fourth grade teacher. My oldest son had his first grade teacher who just, whenever they sent a survey home from his school asking what they could do to improve, I'd say fire this teacher. That was my answer. Get rid of her because she was horrible. Yeah. Yell at the boys. Every boy in the class was bullied. She, I don't know what it was about her and boys, but she didn't like them. And then, you know, my older daughter was always very bright. I don't know how she learned to read. She just did. Mm. She was reading by the time she was four and taught herself. And she would go to school and then they would, because she was bright and quick, they would expect her to help the kids who were challenged, which then affected her work. Right. You know, when you don't put enough staff in a classroom for your variety of kids, you expect the kids who can do a little better on their own to then be little teachers. Well, that's kind of an interesting point too. And one that actually you bring up and suddenly it unfolds for me, which is we often don't really reckon on the fact that school is a workplace and now you're dealing with whatever management challenges the school has. Did they hire enough people? Did they vet these people properly? Do they have the resources to be able to do it if they have the resources what's the leadership even like at the like you almost don't know until you hit the speed bumps that may or may not happen with your kid but you really end up on the receiving end as a stakeholder from a lot of management decisions that you almost have no access to absolutely i know there was a a point when my son was in second or third grade and one of the teachers decided to show a movie that I would not have allowed my second or third grade kid to watch. Hmm. I thought the content was beyond that level. And they didn't tell anyone they were going to show it. It was hmm. aimed more at teenagers. You know, a, a junior high kid would have gotten it. But the content and the, the movie itself were just not something that should have been shown in that level of classroom and when I questioned it I was treated like I was stupid and what did I know it's like well he's my kid and I know how he's sensitive and how he isn't and what content is going to harm him right right so yeah and then there were the teachers who assigned watching particular programs on tv you know oh you got to watch this show on the nature channel well we don't have the nature channel because we don't have cable right So you can watch this other show instead. But then having to fight for my kid to be able to watch that other show because we didn't have cable. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I once calculated that I had about 40 teachers, K through 12. And, you know, some of them were terrific. I'm sure most of them were well-meaning and some of them were truly awful. And then there's just this giant, like every distribution curve there's just a lot of people in the middle that meh (laughs) yeah one of the things I loved about homeschooling is that we didn't have to put up with that really you either go and get what you need out of it or you make what you need out of it right here and one or the other if you're signed up for a class and it's not working out guess what you don't have to go you can stop (laughs) you can try something else I used to sign my kids up for sports if they wanted to play 
Right. But each kid was allowed one activity because I'm one person and I can only be in so many places at a time. So if you choose Girl Scouts, you don't get to also play soccer. You want to, mm. well, although I got to be honest, only one of my kids played soccer for one season and that was it because I don't like soccer. And Chickabee is <laughs> very, very competitive about soccer. So even the small children have like several days a week of practice. Oh. And I said, you know, we're done. <laughs> no more soccer. You can play oh. anything else you want. You can play basketball. You can swim. You can, you know, play football. Well, actually not football. My husband wouldn't let that happen. But, you know, baseball and basketball and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you can do Boy Scouts. Or you can do Girl Scouts, things like that. And eventually my kid, my girls didn't like Girl Scouts. My oldest loved Boy Scouts. My youngest did not. <laughs> Every kid has their own likes and dislikes. And I had one guest say that homeschooling just is a lot more like college than it is like K through 12. That you really do, you can go ahead and take that class. And if you don't like that class, then you don't have to do that class. Find another class. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I know my youngest hated high school, hated every minute of it. He did well, but he hated it. And he got to college and he said, oh, this is so much better because mm. I go to class, I do my work, and I don't have to sit through hours and hours of everybody else waiting for everybody else to get it if I already get it. If I'm done, yeah. I'm I'm done and I get to leave. Yeah. 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 Particularly on test days, like, okay, I'm done with my exam. I get to get up and I'm, I'm done. I can go and sit and, you know, have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever and <laughs> have time. Yeah. It's funny. I, there's a lot that I find really hopeful about the pandemic. And there's a lot of stuff that I feel like got stuck and had no way of loosening up. Like, you know, when, when the air started to clear because people weren't driving, it was suddenly like, oh, we could do this. This is within our ability. But I'm also finding it shining a light through a lot of cracks. And some of these are doing school the way we always did it. It's going to be super interesting to watch it evolve. And I hope with a whole generation of kids who go, oh, this doesn't suit me at all. But if we did it this way, I could make it work. Yeah. I feel bad for parents who have had to try to crisis school their kids in different grade levels Mm. because these zoom classes or whatever, if Mary needs to have be on zoom at this time, but so does John and so does Amy. Right. And there are still a lot of homes where everybody doesn't have a tablet or a laptop or internet that can handle that much Right, or internet (laughs) that can handle that much. And it's extremely challenging especially for things that you really need a teacher to teach. You know, there are some things you need someone to stand up there and say, okay, this is how we do it and show like on the blackboard or whatever. But when you're at home and you're trying to make sure that your kids all get what they're supposed to get, but you only have your work laptop and one home computer, it's extremely challenging. Whereas when you homeschool, you can take your history and you can teach on a cycle where everybody this year is learning about ancient history. And next That's year we'll go to Renaissance or medieval, you know, we'll go to medieval and Renaissance history. And then the year after that, maybe we'll do American history. But we I lifted that from classical. <laughs> well, and that, that was, I found that that was 
what worked best for us because then everybody can be learning about the same things and it's one less thing you have to prepare. Yeah. You prepare one sit down period for everybody and then everyone's got their reading to do or their, you know, their writing to do or their notebook, the different things that they could put together. And there again, having the right tools to work with your kids and what you have available. Yeah. And you don't have to do a ton of testing or assessment because in conversation, you find out, oh, okay, I remember my kids watched a documentary on the Kelvin scale. Uh I told them they had to watch something within this time on a subject within this time period. They went off, the three of them, they went off and they watched this thing on the Kelvin scale and they came back and like chatted about it. I think it was dinner, although we always had family meetings once a week. I think that what they were chatting about, it was dinner. They had a couple things they wanted clarification on and wondered about. And I answered a couple and we looked up a couple and it was just conversation. No one needed to really sit down at a test on the Kelvin scale. I said, write up a little paragraph of, you know, what you learned from this. And it went into the report. Right. But it was like, you know, what if we just understanding and mastery, not you're on the hot seat for a test. Right. And every kid tests differently. I mean, I did use some standardized testing in my homeschool just so my kids would know what a standardized test was. I did that as a unit. Yeah. And I didn't, for reporting purposes, I did not submit test scores because you submit test scores and they see that one area is lower, one area went down. It just could be the kid had a bad day. So we used a different method of reporting than testing. Did you use a portfolio? I used portfolio when they were young. I, you know, I put together work samples and portfolio when they were young. And as they got older, I actually wrote a progress report. Uh You know, they have progressed in this area and, a progress report doesn't have to be extremely detailed as long as they're progressing. Right. So right. there again, that's where those websites, AHEM and whatever the MHLA or I think yeah. it's MHLA, they have really good templates or samples that people can look at and say, oh, okay, this is what a progress report needs to look like, or this is what my ed plan needs to look like. Tools for you yeah. so that you why reinvent the wheel? Somebody's already done this work. So you can use these things to put together what you need to for your kids. Yeah. Well, and my oldest came back to homeschool. It's not even worth going through the details of where they were and weren't in school for various reasons. But my oldest just had had it with a charter school mismanagement. And she left at, I think she was 16. and just went and spent the year doing what she loved, which actually was circus. She became a circus coach and performer. And she went through a GED book, took the GED and was done. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, there's your, <laughs> there's your curriculum for you, honey. Massive sports. She essentially took on the curriculum of Olympic athletes. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. your final year, you need to get through what the state needs you to get through. But your actual education is all this training you're doing. Yeah. Okay. And all all of those things contribute so much to their maturity levels and their ability levels. And my son, my youngest, when he went to school, his freshman year, he didn't do any sports or any extra stuff. He tried out for the basketball team. He didn't make it. And he said, you know what? I'm okay with that. The following year, 
he had a friend who was into theater and belonged to a theater group. So he said, Mom, can I try this? Because this is his best friend, and this is a way they can spend time together. So he discovered theater, particularly musical theater, and discovered that he was really good at it. And he also discovered the diving board. Oh. And he got on the diving board for the first time in the end of November of that school year, and he went to state championships in February. Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's why he goes to school where he goes to school. He was recruited to go there because of his diving. But he was able to find these skills because he had the confidence to go and try new things. Right. And giving our kids the confidence to go and try new things and learn new things is really our goal. Yeah. Yes, you want them to be able to pass the test, but really the test is being able to go out into the world and learn new things and do new things and step into whatever role they need to step into. Yeah. Giving them the tools to be able to do that. Yeah. That's the goal. Giving them those tools. I love that. That's a great place to finish up. Thank you so much, Christine, for coming and talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I can't believe an hour has gone by already. (laughs) (laughs) One of my mantras is, Everything counts. All the credits count. When they talk about doing 10,000 hours of something to learn it, since that book came out, I think it's a Malcolm Gladwell book, there's been some refinement to that concept. Because 10,000 hours is if you are starting something from absolute scratch. And none of us, once we're adults, really are. Like, it's a good metric, and it's a nice, quick, and lovely title. But really, really often, more often than we think, we can domain shift. We can take the credits that we earned already and apply them to this new thing. That may not be true as much with physical challenges, like you know, one of the things about Malcolm Gladwell's book is it, you know, if you were going to start right now to become a marathon runner, maybe that is a 10,000 hours. But if you've been running for years, then it's not going to be 10,000 hours. You can domain shift. You can say, oh, well, you know, I've been a runner. I understand what happens in these cases. You're already ahead of the game. This is true with a lot of things. And one of those things that I just think is so interesting is business, which I do consulting with, the things that I learned in parenting, the things that I learned in running and managing a family turned out to be transferable credits. And it was one of those things that I was a little surprised to find out. I got my MBA a couple of years ago. I had always wanted to get a master's degree. I hadn't known what to get it in for years and years and years. And then I kept finding that I was working for nonprofits and improving their bottom line or their systems and ending up creating a more supportive environment. And I thought, I really would like to learn more about business. I was a late bloomer. So I went to Trinity College in Ireland in 2018, and I took an intensive one-year master's degree. And 
day after day after day, I kept finding that what I needed to learn was not 10,000 hours. I, there was stuff I needed to learn for sure, and there were challenges that I had for sure. But a lot of the content, a lot of what there was to learn was leadership. And leadership is relationship building at its core. And relationship building is what I had been doing my whole life with my family, with my community, with my jobs, everything was relationship building. And I was like, this is not going to be 10,000 hours. So one of the things I really like is those kinds of domain shifts. And when you step back and think about it, business, the way that we do it in this country, the way that we do it pretty much through the world, has a very unrecognized, I want to say unstudied, I'm sure people are studying it, but you just don't see very much discussion of it way in which it models the nuclear family or, or the family structure, traditionalist family structure. You have people that are in charge, that have power, that are treated as if they, well, in fact, they may even be called superiors. They, are, they have a superior position in the company. And then there, there is a hierarchy from there. And that plays out that little, that little miniature of people in charge of subordinate people plays out all the way through a company. And that is exactly like a traditional family, uh, at least a traditional American family, the idea that the parents tell the kids what to do, a management kind of thing. And I use that word a lot. Though, in fact, when I talk about management, I'm usually talking about an ideal management, which is a partnership. One of the things that we often don't do as managers of the family is good management. In that, if you are a manager and you are a good leader and you've learned to maybe reduce that whole hierarchy of just telling people what to do, if you've realized people don't like to be told what to do, I don't care how old they are, nobody likes to be told what to do. And that that resistance is built in and that cooperation doesn't necessarily occur if you're just being told what to do and being punished for not doing it. Those are workplaces we tend to hate. And 72% of American workers, according to Gallup, hate their work. And one of the biggest reasons for it is not the work itself. It's they always say you leave your manager, you don't leave the work. That is a relationship that has failed and it's unfortunate and it's unproductive and it's it just causes a lot of misery. It causes a lot of misery for the business. It reduces productivity. So from a purely capitalistic sense, it's no good, but I'm not really interested in that. What I'm really interested in is it wastes the social capital. It wastes this relationship and it's worth noting that you don't have to do that. So we can learn from good business practices how to be better parents. We can learn from parenting how to be better employees and employers. And that all counts. So instead of telling people what to do as a manager, the way people like to work is to be discussed with of what the shared goals are. I actually want to back up. 
it's not just shared goals. It's shared culture and shared mission and shared vision. I'm the first one to roll my eyes at mission statements and vision processes because they often feel like a pointless exercise in drivel. <laughs> and I've sat in on a lot of these things where it just, it seems like, you know, a consultant told us we had to do this, so we're going to do it, but it's stupid. And that's one way to look at it. But it's an incredibly powerful tool. People don't know how to behave unless they know how to behave. And kids don't know how to behave unless they know what the expectations are. So maybe instead of mission and vision, it should be more like, I guess we could call it an expectation. Although that also has a certain kind of punitive punishment side to it. So maybe we're back to mission and vision. Have you ever stepped back and then met with your kids to talk about what your mission is as a family, what your values are as a family? Take a list of values and pick three to five, not to say they're not important. And this is something that this wrecks all kinds of havoc with my ADHD, where I look at a list of 85 possible values and I go crazy because I love them all equally. But maybe do a little comparison chart and try to find ones that really speak to you. Pick them out. Ask your kids. Ask your spouse. Ask whoever's involved in your family. Actually, I would say kids and spouse are the main ones. If you live with other family members, include them. If you don't live with them, don't include them. This is something there to be informed about, not necessarily brought into this. So sit there and decide what your family values are. If your family value is fun, if that's one of your three to five top family values, then fun should be incorporated in everything you do. If one of your top three to five values is, is volunteering, then that should be something that you really, really look at. But it doesn't hurt at all to do this exercise. By the way, if you're starting a small business, this would be the first, one of the first things you do is figure out what your values are. You can't communicate values to anybody if you don't know what they are. And I actually think kids should be in everything, a voting member of the citizenship. You still have veto power because the voting members may decide that they're going to have candy every single meal for the rest of their lives. You can veto that with children, but they should have a vote. So when it comes to this kind of thing, this is like a really good way to kick off regular family meetings is to talk about what are our values as a family? What's important to us? And really, really think about that. Now that you have them, whenever you have any kind of argument, whenever you have a disagreement, whenever you're starting something new, whenever an opportunity arises, whenever tragedy hits, Call out those values again. In fact, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea in both businesses and in families to haul out those values every time you meet. Because now when you look at what's coming up, it will remind you what's important, what's important to you. So the second piece of this is mission. You can have a family mission. It's informed by those values. The mission of this family is 
to have strong relationships with each other, to make the world a better place than we found it. You can have these kinds of things. And that's another thing. It's, it comes out of business, but it, it's not problematic if you use it. It's problematic if it's just an act. And then vision. Our vision is that our kids have healthy relationships and are reasonably happy. That success for us means being happy. I don't know what your family mission and values and your vision for your family is. Only you know that. But you can share that with your kids. This can be a really helpful way to reconstruct a family after a big upheaval, after you move, after divorce, when, whenever you really have a huge shift that you have to make. Heck, even deciding to redo schooling to be real homeschooling is a big shift to make. Try it. Try it for three months. Try, try doing this process and seeing if it helps. With everything, you'll have to tailor it to yourself. But I have found so many times that it is clarifying and it just suddenly all this stuff you just don't have to make decisions about. And the more you can do that, like I talked about the Pareto principle last week, the more you can offload decision making, then the more care that sort of 20% of decisions that are really important, really deserve your attention, deserve your connection, and deserve your care, the more you can actually That's it give for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Still Be sure to visit working9totothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find so resources, that, take and join care the conversation. Of this week. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.